Section 32 of The History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Emily Maynard. The History of Rome, Volume 1, by Livy. Translated by William Maspin Roberts. Book 5, Chapters 33 to 42. Chapter 33. THE MIGRATIONS OF THE GAULS INTO ITALY After the expulsion of that citizens whose presence, if there is anything certain in human affairs, would have made the capture of Rome impossible, the doom of the fated city swiftly approached. Ambassadors came from Clusium, begging for assistance against the Gauls. The tradition is that this nation, attracted by the report of the delicious fruits and especially of the wine, a novel pleasure to them, crossed the Alps and occupied the lands formerly cultivated by the Etruscans, and that Arons of Clusium imported wine into Gaul in order to allure them into Italy. His wife had been seduced by a Lucumo, to whom he was guardian, and from whom, being a young man of considerable influence, it was impossible to get redress without getting help from abroad. In revenge, Arons led the Gauls across the Alps and prompted them to attack Clusium. I would not deny that the Gauls were conducted to Clusium by Arons or someone else living there, but it is quite clear that those who attacked that city were not the first who crossed the Alps. As a matter of fact, Gauls crossed into Italy two centuries before they attacked Clusium and took Rome. Nor were the Clusines the first Etruscans with whom the Gaulish armies came into conflict. Long before that, they had fought many battles with the Etruscans who dwelt between the Apennines and the Alps. Before the Roman supremacy, the power of the Tuscans was widely extended both by sea and land. How far it extended over the two seas by which Italy is surrounded like an island is proved by the names for the nations of Italy call the one the Tuscan Sea from the general designation of the people and the other the Atriatic from Atria, a Tuscan colony. The Greeks also call them the Tyrrhene and the Adriatic. The districts stretching towards either sea were inhabited by them. They first settled on this side, the Apennines, by the western sea, in twelve cities. Afterwards, they founded twelve colonies beyond the Apennines, corresponding to the number of the mother cities. These colonies held the whole of the country, beyond the Po, as far as the Alps, with the exception of the corner inhabited by the Veneti, who dwelt round an arm of the sea. The Alpine tribes are undoubtedly of the same stock, especially the Raiti, who had, through the nature of their country, become so uncivilized that they retained no trace of their original condition except their language, and even this was not free from corruption. Chapter 34 About the passage of the Gauls into Italy, we have received the following account. Whilst Tarquinius Priscus was king of Rome, the supreme power among the Celts, who formed a third part of the whole of Gaul, was in the hands of the Biturigis, they used to furnish the king for the whole Celtic race. Ambigatus was king at that time, a man eminent for his own personal courage and prosperity, as much as for those of his dominions. During his sway, the harvests were so abundant and the population increased so rapidly in Gaul that the government of such vast numbers seemed almost impossible. He was now an old man and anxious to relieve his realm from the burden of overpopulation. 
With this view, he signified his intention of sending his sister's sons, Belovisus and Segovisus, both enterprising young men, to settle in whatever locality the gods should by augury assign to them. They were to invite as many as wished to accompany them, sufficient to prevent any nation from repelling their approach. When the auspices were taken, the Hercynian forest was assigned to Segovisus. To Belovisus the gods gave their far pleasanter way into Italy. He invited the surplus population of six tribes, the Beturiges, the Averni, the Senones, the Aedui, the Ambari, the Carnutes, and the Alarchi. Starting with an enormous force of horse and foot, he came to the Tricastini. Beyond stretched the barrier of the Alps, and I am not at all surprised that they appeared insurmountable, for they had never yet been surmounted by any route, as far as least as unbroken memory reaches, unless you choose to believe the fables about Hercules. Whilst the mountain heights kept the Gauls fenced in, as it were there, and they were looking everywhere to see by what path they could cross the peaks which reached to heaven and so enter a new world, they were also prevented from advancing by a sense of religious obligation, for news came that some strangers in quest of territory were being attacked by the Salii. These were Massilians who had sailed from Phocaea. The Gauls, looking upon this as an omen of their own fortunes, went to their assistance and enabled them to fortify the spot where they had first landed, without any interference from the Salii. After crossing the Alps by the passes of the Taurini and the valley of the Dauro, they defeated the Tuscans in battle not far from the Ticinus, and when they learnt that the country in which they had settled belonged to the Insubres, a name also borne by a canton of the Haidui, they accepted the omen of the place and built a city which they called Mediolanum. Chapter 35 Subsequently another body, consisting of the Cenomani, under the leadership of Elitovius, followed the track of the former and crossed the Alps by the same pass with the goodwill of Belovisus. They had their settlements where the cities of Brixia and Verona now stand. The Libui came next, and the Saluvi. They settled near the ancient tribe of the Ligurian Laivi, who lived about the Ticinus. Then the Boi and the Lingonis crossed the Pennine Alps, and as all the country between the Po and the Alps was occupied, they crossed the Po on rafts and expelled not only the Etruscans, but the Umbrians as well. They remained, however, north of the Apennines. Then the Senones, the last to come, occupied the country from the Utis to the Isis. It was this last tribe, I find, that came to Clusium, and from there to Rome, but it is uncertain whether they came alone or helped by the contingents from all the Cisalpine peoples. The Destruction of Rome The people of Clusium were appalled by this strange war when they saw the numbers, the extraordinary appearance of the men, and the kind of weapons they used, and heard that the legions of Etruria had been often routed by them on both sides of the Po. Although they had no claim on Rome, either on the ground of alliance or friendly relations, unless it was that they had not defended their kinsmen at Veii against the Romans, they nevertheless sent ambassadors to ask the Senate for assistance. Active assistance they did not obtain. The three sons of Marcus Fabius Ambustus were sent as ambassadors to negotiate with the Gauls and warn them not to attack those from whom they had suffered no injury, 
who were allies and friends of Rome, and who, if circumstances compelled them, must be defended by the armed force of Rome. They preferred that actual war should be avoided, and that they should make acquaintance with the Gauls, who were strangers to them, in peace rather than in arms. Chapter 36 a peaceable enough mission, had it not contained envoys of a violent temper, more like Gauls than Romans. After they had delivered their instructions in the council of the Gauls, the following reply was given. Quote, Although we are hearing the name of Romans for the first time, we believe, nevertheless, that you are brave men, since the Clusines are imploring your assistance in their time of danger since you prefer to protect your allies against us by negotiation rather than by armed force, we on our side do not reject the peace you offer, on condition that the Clusines cede to us Gauls, who are in need of land, a portion of that territory which they possess to a greater extent than they can cultivate. On any other conditions peace cannot be granted. We wish to receive their reply in your presence, and if territory is refused us, we shall fight, whilst you are still here, that you may report to those at home how far the Gauls surpass all other men in courage. The Romans asked them what right they had to demand, under threat of war, territory from those who were its owners, and what business the Gauls had in Etruria. The haughty answer was returned that they carried their right in their weapons, and that everything belonged to the brave. Passions were kindled on both sides. They flew to arms and joined battle. Thereupon, contrary to the law of nations, the envoys seized their weapons, for the fates were already urging Rome to its ruin. The fact of the three of the noblest and bravest Romans fighting in the front line of the Etruscan army could not be concealed, so conspicuous was the valor of the strangers. And what was more, Quintus Fabius rode forward at a Gaulish chieftain who was impetuously charging right at the Etruscan standards, ran his spear through his side, and slew him. Whilst he was in the act of despoiling the body, the Gauls recognized him, and the word was passed through the whole army that it was a Roman ambassador. Forgetting their rage against the Clusines, and breathing threats against the Romans, they sounded the retreat. Some were for an instant advance on Rome. The older men thought that ambassadors should first be sent to Rome to make a formal complaint and demand the surrender of the Fabi as satisfaction for the violation of the law of nations. After the ambassadors had stated their case, the Senate, whilst disapproving of the conduct of the Fabi and recognizing the justice of the demand which the barbarians made, were prevented by political interests from placing their convictions on record in the form of a decree in the case of men of such high rank. In order, therefore, that the blame for any defeat which might be incurred in a war with the Gauls might not rest on them alone, they referred the consideration of the Gauls' demand to the people. Here personal popularity and influence had so much more weight than the very men whose punishment was under discussion were elected consular tribunes for the next year. The Gauls regarded this procedure as it deserved to be regarded, namely as an act of hostility, and after openly threatening war, returned to their people. The other consular tribunes elected with the Fabi were Quintus Sepulchius Longus, Quintus Servilius, for the fourth time, and Publius Cornelius Maluginensis. Chapter 37 to such an extent does fortune blind men's eyes when she will not have her threatened blows parried. 
that though such a weight of disaster was hanging over the state, no special steps were taken to avert it. In the wars against Fidenai and Vei and other neighboring states, a dictator had on many occasions been nominated as a last resource. But now, when an enemy never seen or even heard of before was rousing up war from ocean and the furthest corners of the world, no recourse was had to a dictator. No extraordinary efforts were made. Those men through whose recklessness the war had been brought about were in supreme commands as tribunes, and the levy they raised was not larger than had been usual in ordinary campaigns. They even made light of the reports as to the seriousness of the war. Meantime, the Gauls learnt that their embassy had been treated with contempt, and that honors had actually been conferred upon men who had violated the law of nations. Burning with rage, as a nation they cannot control their passions, they seized their standards and hurriedly set out on their march. At the sound of their tumult, as they swept by, the affrighted cities flew to arms and the country folk took to flight. Horses and men, spread far and wide, covered an immense tract of country. Wherever they went, they made it understood by loud shouts that they were going to Rome. But though they were preceded by rumors and by messages from Clusium, and then from one town after another, it was the swiftness of their approach that created most alarm in Rome. An army hastily raised by a levy en masse marched out to meet them. The two forces met hardly eleven miles from Rome, at a spot where the Alia, flowing in a very deep channel from the Crustuminian Mountains, joins the river Tiber a little below the road to Crustumerium. The whole country in front and around was now swarming with the enemy, who, being as a nation given to wild outbreaks, had by their hideous howls and discordant clamor filled everything with dreadful noise. Chapter 38 The consular tribunes had secured no position for their camp, had constructed no entrenchments behind which to retire, and had shown as much disregard of the gods as of the enemy, for they formed their order of battle without having obtained favorable auspices. They extended their line on either wing to prevent their being outflanked, but even so they could not make their front equal to the enemy's, whilst by thus thinning their line they weakened the center so that it could hardly keep in touch. On their right was a small eminence which they decided to hold with reserves, and this disposition, though it was the beginning of the panic and flight, proved to be the only means of safety to the fugitives. For Benus, the Gaulish chieftain, fearing some ruse in the scanty numbers of the enemy, and thinking that the rising ground was occupied in order that the reserves might attack the flank and rear of the Gauls, while their front was engaged with the legions, directed his attack upon the reserves, feeling quite certain that if he drove them from their position, his overwhelming numbers would give him an easy victory on the level ground. So not only fortune, but tactics also were on the side of the barbarians. In the other army, there was nothing to remind one of Romans either amongst the generals or the private soldiers. They were terrified, and all they thought about was flight, and so utterly had they lost their heads that a far greater number fled to Vei, a hostile city, though the Tiber lay in their way, than by the direct road to Rome, to their wives and children. For a short time the reserves were protected by their position. In the rest of the army no sooner was the battle-shout heard on their flank by those nearest to the reserves, and then by those at the other end of the line heard in their rear, than they fled, whole and unhurt, almost before they had seen their untried foe, 
without any attempt to fight or even to give back the battle shout. None were slain while actually fighting. They were cut down from behind whilst hindering one another's flight in a confused, struggling mass. Along the bank of the Tiber, whither the whole of the left wing had fled, after throwing away their arms, there was great slaughter. Many who were unable to swim, or were hampered by the weight of their cuirasses and other armor, were sucked down by the current. The greater number, however, reached Vei in safety. Yet not only were no troops sent from there to defend the city, but not even was a messenger despatched to report the defeat to Rome. All the men on the right wing, which had been stationed some distance from the river and nearer to the foot of the hill, made for Rome and took refuge in the citadel without even closing the city gates. Chapter 39 The Gauls, for their part, were almost dumb with astonishment at so sudden and extraordinary a victory. At first they did not dare to move from the spot, as though puzzled by what had happened. Then they began to fear a surprise. At last they began to despoil the dead, and, as their custom is, to pile up the arms in heaps. Finally, as no hostile movement was anywhere visible, they commenced their march and reached Rome shortly before sunset. The cavalry, who had ridden on in front, reported that the gates were not shut, that there were no pickets on guard in front of them, no troops on the walls. This second surprise, as extraordinary as the previous one, held them back, and fearing a nocturnal conflict in the streets of an unknown city, they halted and bivouacked between Rome and the Anio. Reconnoitering parties were sent out to examine the circuit of the walls and the other gates, and to ascertain what plans their enemies were forming in their desperate plight. As for the Romans, since the greater number had fled from the field in the direction of Vei instead of Rome, it was universally believed that the only survivors were those who had found refuge in Rome, and the mourning for all who were lost, whether living or dead, filled the whole city with the cries of lamentation. But the sounds of private grief were stifled by the general terror when it was announced that the enemy were at hand. Presently the yells and wild war-whoops of the squadrons were heard as they rode round the walls. All the time until the next day's dawn, the citizens were in such a state of suspense that they expected from moment to moment an attack on the city. They expected it first when the enemy approached the walls, for they would have remained at the Alia had this not been their object. Then just before sunset, they thought the enemy would attack because there was not much daylight left. And then when night was fallen, they imagined that the attack was delayed till then to create all the greatest terror. Finally, the approach of the next day deprived them of their senses. The entrance of the enemy's standards within the gates was the dreadful climax to fears that had known no respite. But all through that night and the following day, the citizens afforded an utter contrast to those who had fled in such terror at the Alia. Realizing the hopelessness of attempting any defense of the city with the small numbers that were left, they decided that the men of military age and the able-bodied amongst the senators should, with their wives and children, withdraw into the citadel and the capital, and, after getting in stores of arms and provisions, should, from that fortified position, defend their gods, themselves, and the great name of Rome. The flamen and priestesses of Vesta were to carry the sacred things of the state far away from the bloodshed and the fire, and their sacred cult should not be abandoned as long as a single person survived to observe it. If only the citadel and the capital, the abode of the gods, 
If only the Senate, the guiding mind of the national policy, if only the men of military age survived the impending ruin of the city, then the loss of the crowd of the old men left behind in the city could be easily borne. In any case, they were certain to perish. To reconcile the aged plebeians to their fate, the men who had been consuls and enjoyed triumphs gave out that they would meet their fate side by side with them, and not burden the scanty force of fighting men with bodies too weak to carry arms or defend their country. Chapter 40 Thus they sought to comfort one another, these aged men doomed to death. Then they turned with words of encouragement to the younger men on their way to the citadel and capital, and solemnly commended to their strength and courage all that was left of the fortunes of a city which for three hundred and sixty years had been victorious in all its wars. As those who were carrying with them all hope and succor finally separated from those who had resolved not to survive the fall of the city, the misery of the scene was heightened by the distress of the women. Their tears, their distracted running about as they followed first their husbands, then their sons, their imploring appeals to them not to leave them to their fate, made up a picture in which no element of human misery was wanting. A great many of them actually followed their sons into the capital, none forbidding or inviting them, for though to diminish the number of non-combatants would have helped the besieged, it was too inhuman a step to take. Another crowd, mainly of plebeians, for whom there was not room on so small a hill or food enough in the scanty store of corn, poured out of the city in one continuous line and made for the Janiculum. From there they dispersed, some over the country, others toward the neighboring cities, without any leader or concerted action, each following his own aims, his own ideas, and all despairing of the public safety. While all this was going on, the Flamen of Quirinus and the Vestal Virgins, without giving a thought to their own property, were deliberating as to which of the sacred things they ought to take with them, and which to leave behind, since they had not the strength enough to carry all, and also what place would be the safest for their custody. They thought best to conceal what they could not take in earthen jars, and bury them under the chapel next to the Flamen's house, where spitting is now forbidden. The rest they divided amongst them, and carried off, taking the road which leads by the Pons Sublicius to the Janiculum, Whilst ascending that hill, they were seen by Lucius Albinius, a Roman plebeian who, with the rest of the crowd, who were unfit for war, was leaving the city. Even in that critical hour, the distinction between sacred and profane was not forgotten. He had his wife and children with him in a wagon, and it seemed to him an act of impiety for him and his family to be seen in a vehicle whilst the national priest should be trudging along on foot, bearing the sacred vessels of Rome. He ordered his wife and children to get down, put the virgins and their sacred burden in the wagon, and drove them to Cairo, their destination. Chapter 41 After all the arrangements that circumstances permitted had been made for the defense of the capital, the old men returned to their respective homes, and, fully prepared to die, awaited the coming of the enemy. Those who had filled curule offices resolved to meet their fate wearing the insignia of their former rank and honor and distinctions. They put on the splendid dress which they wore when conducting the chariots of the gods or riding in triumph through the city, and thus arrayed, they seated themselves in their ivory chairs in front of their houses. Some writers record that, led by Marcus Fabius, the Pontifex Maximus, they recited the solemn formula in which they devoted themselves to death for their country and the Quirites. 
as the Gauls were refreshed by a night's rest after a battle which had at no point been seriously contested, and as they were now taking the city by assault or storm, their entrance the next day was not marked by any signs of excitement or anger. Passing the Coline Gate, which was standing open, they came to the Forum and gazed round at the temples and at the Citadel, which alone wore any appearance of war. They left there a small body to guard against any attack from the citadel or capital, whilst they were scattered, and then they dispersed in quest of plunder through streets in which they did not meet a soul. Some poured in a body into all the houses near, others made for the most distant ones, expecting to find them untouched and full of spoils. Appalled by the very desolation of the place, and dreading lest some stratagem should surprise the stragglers, they returned to the neighborhood of the Forum in close order. The houses of the plebeians were barricaded, the halls of the patricians stood open, but they felt greater hesitation about entering the open houses than those which were closed. They gazed with feelings of real veneration upon the men who were seated in the porticos of their mansions, not only because of the superhuman magnificence of their apparel and their whole bearing and demeanor, but also because of the majestic expression of their countenances, wearing the very aspect of gods. So they stood gazing at them as if they were statues, till, as it is asserted, one of the patricians, Marcus Papirius, roused the passion of a Gaul, who began to stroke his beard, which in those days was universally worn long, by smiting him on the head with his ivory staff. He was the first to be killed, the others were butchered in their chairs. After this slaughter of the magnates, no living being was thenceforth spared. The houses were rifled and then set on fire. Chapter 42 Now, whether it was that the Gauls were not all animated by a passion for the destruction of the city, or whether their chiefs had decided on the one hand to present the spectacle of a few fires as a means of intimidating the besieged into surrender from a desire to save their homes, and on the other by abstaining from a universal conflagration, hold what remained of the city as a pledge by which to weaken their enemy's determination, Certain it is that the fires were far from being so indiscriminate or so extensive as might be expected on the first day of a captured city. As the Romans beheld from the citadel, the city filled with the enemy who were running about in all the streets, while some new disaster was constantly occurring, first in one quarter, then in another, they could no longer control their eyes and ears, let alone their thoughts and feelings. In whatever direction their attention was drawn by the shouts of the enemy, the shrieks of the women and boys, the roar of the flames, and the crash of the houses falling in, thither they turned their eyes and minds as though set by fortune to be spectators of their country's fall, powerless to protect anything left of all they possessed beyond their lives. Above all others who have ever stood a siege were they to be pitied, cut off as they were from the land of their birth, and seeing all that had been theirs in the possession of the enemy. The day which had been spent in such misery was succeeded by a night not one whit more restful, this again by a day of anguish. There was not a single hour free from the sight of some ever-fresh calamity. And yet, though weighed down and overwhelmed with so many misfortunes, they had watched everything laid low in flame and ruin, they did not for a moment relax their determination to defend by their courage the one spot still left to freedom, the hill which they held, however small and poor it might be. At length, as this state of things went on day by day, they became, as it were, hardened to misery, 
and turned their thoughts from the circumstances round them to their arms and the sword in the right hand, which they gazed upon as the only things left to give them hope. End of section 32